Will you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139? Psalm 139. And if you need a Bible, these guys have some. They're going to make their way down the aisle, get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you. And it is marked at Psalm 139, which is one of several passages that we'll consider in our message today. As you see at the top of the outline that was inserted in your program, and I encourage you to take a look at that, it says that selected scriptures are going to be referenced as we take a break from our series in the book of James. And we take that break because, as you see at the top of the screen, it says, Sanctity of Life Sunday. Today, churches across the country are observing that event, Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's an annual event which takes place the Sunday before an infamous anniversary. This Tuesday will be the 40th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade, which in one fell swoop invalidated the laws of 50 states regarding abortion. In that decision, the court determined that abortion in the first trimester was an inviolable right. In the years since, the procedure has advanced well beyond the first 13 weeks to include the killing of babies born alive after a failed botched abortion and the barbaric practice of partial birth abortion. Since that decision, over 50 million abortions have been performed in our country. We average one and a quarter million every year. One baby is murdered every 30 seconds. Five or six have been killed since I started talking. Now, the pagan world has long ago spoken on their view of the value or non-value of life. John Davis, in his book, Evangelical Ethics, has a number of quotes from pagan thinkers. Let me share some of those with you. If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, we'll find the non-human to have superior capacities both actual and potential, for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that can plausibly be considered morally significant. Humans who bestow superior value on the lives of all human beings solely because they're members of our own species are judging along lines strikingly similar to those used by white racists who bestow superior value on the lives of other whites merely because they're members of of their own race. That is Peter Singer, who's a college professor, spent some time at uh, Princeton University. And going back in history, the first form of fertility control appears to be a prescription for an oral abortifacient by a Chinese emperor going back to uh, 2800 B.C., Abortion was not uncommon in ancient Greece and in Rome. Plato wrote that ill-conceived embryos should not be brought to birth, and if the children were born, the parents, parents should dispose of them. Aristotle was of the opinion that deformed children should be exposed and left to die. 
Thankfully, that pagan view, obviously held by many today in our country, as evidenced by the prevalence of the practice of abortion, but thankfully throughout history that's not always been the case and certainly not in the history of the church. Hippocrates included the following statement in his oath for physicians. I will not give a woman a medication to cause abortion. The Code of Hammurabi, going back to about 1700 B.C., contained prohibitions against abortion. The laws of Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria in the 12th century B.C. contained, contained prohibitions against the practice. The first century Jewish philosopher Philo condemned abortion together with the practices of infanticide and child abandonment. The early church spoke on this as well. The second century church manual called the Didache. Didache is Greek for teaching. The long title is the teaching of the twelve apostles. And it said, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not procure abortion nor commit infanticide. The epistle of Barnabas said, Thou shalt not procure abortion, thou shalt not commit infanticide as well. In the second century, a Christian apologist wrote, How can we kill a man when we are those who say that all who use abortifacients are homicides and will account to God for their abortions as for the killing of men? For the fetus in the womb is not an animal, and it is God's providence that he exists. Tertullian an attorney who was converted to Christianity, said, For us as Christians, indeed, as homicide is forbidden, it is not lawful to destroy what is in the womb. To prevent being born is to accelerate homicide. Nor does it make a difference whether you snatch away a soul which is born or destroy one being born. He who is man to be is man, as all fruit is now in the seed. Fourth century Christian council likewise condemned abortion. And Augustine, the most influential of the church fathers of the West, condemned it in no uncertain terms. Speaking of the married couples who avoid having children, he said, sometimes this lustful cruelty or cruel lust comes to this, that they even procure poisons of sterility. And if these do not work, they extinguish and destroy the fetus in some way in the womb, preferring that their offspring die before it lives, or if it is already alive in the womb, to kill it before it was born. Anglo-Saxon law codified prohibitions against abortion throughout the Middle Ages. In 1803, as a general provision of British criminal law, abortion was made illegal before as well as after what they called quickening. That is the time when the mother's first able to feel movement in the womb. And that British reform became the model for similar legislation in the United States. From 1859 to the end of that century, the American Medical Association campaigned vigorously to outlaw abortion except in cases where the mother's life would be endangered by a continuation of the pregnancy. And that concern by the doctors to limit abortion was spurred by new scientific discoveries in human embryology that clearly established a new human being was in existence from the time of conception. And then we come to 1973, January 22nd, and our Supreme Court ruled 
that it is a right, a right granted in our Constitution that cannot be abridged to kill an infant in the womb. This obviously, then, moral issue has become political. As interest groups seek to chip away at abortion on one side, as that's the best that can be done at present, given the Supreme Court's ruling, or to protect it as a, as a constitutional right in all its forms from the other side. And our two major political parties have spoken and acted on this issue, as we're going to see later. And so sides have been chosen, and battles are fought over this literally life and death issue. So which side are you on? And in order to answer that, we must first ask where the giver of life, God, stands on the issue, and we'll seek to do that this morning. Now, I want to tell you why I have decided to participate in Sanctity of Life Sunday this year. The Sunday before this last election, I preached a message on what God requires of government from Scripture and then our responsibilities to government. And I said then that, among other things, government is to promote what is right. And I used the protection of life as one important and, I thought, obvious example of what's right. But after that message, I heard comments that made it clear to me that some, even in our congregation, did not understand the Bible's teaching on this issue and how the government is involved in promoting this issue of abortion. And I take that as a failing on my part, and I want to correct it. I want to make sure that every person in our congregation understands what God says about life. And I also want to make sure that we are aware citizens, that we understand how the government is involved in not only the legalization, but the promotion of abortion as well. And in addition to all of that, I was convicted by a message from John MacArthur on this issue. And I'm indebted to him for some of the content in today's message. So I want us to be clear on what God says about the sanctity of life. And I want us to be clear about the government's role in this issue so that we can think and talk and act in a way that honors God. So let's bow together and ask God to help us. Oh Lord, we ask for your aid in this moment. As we look to your word, that we will open our minds and our hearts to the truth therein. Make it clear. Make it plain to us. May your spirit convict us where needed. May it renew our resolve as well in order to act as your hands and your feet in defense of those who can't act for themselves. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've called your attention to the outline inserted in your program. Will you please take a look at that? As we see what God has to say, about this issue of life. First, we'll note that the Bible teaches that life is a gift from God. Life is a gracious gift from God. It's the reason that I prayed as I did during our pastoral prayer, that God is the giver of life, both physical life 
and of spiritual life. It comes to us from His gracious hand as a gift. The Bible also teaches that Satan is the enemy of life. That he is the emissary of death. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So Satan loves it when people participate in murder, in destroying that which God gives as his gift. Satan revels when as a a culture we imbibe in video games and movies and television that gratuitously glorify violence toward what God has made. But life is a gift from God. And we see that, that gift in the fact that life is, I say in your outline, created by God. God gives it and God gave it initially in His creation of humanity. And then in procreation, subsequent to the original miraculous creation that God gave in Adam and Eve. Children are procreated, and the Bible says very straightforwardly, children are a gift of the Lord. And so those of us who have been blessed to have children, every woman who is blessed to conceive a child, has within her a gift that has come from God. Hannah, you'll remember, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, desired a child, and she prayed to the Lord for a child. And here's what she says about the Lord's gift. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. She's recognizing, acknowledging that this child that I now have has come to me from the hand of God as a gift. It's something that he has created. In the story of Ruth, found in the book by that name, when she marries Boaz, they are blessed with a child. And here's what the Bible says of that. The Lord enabled Ruth to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So life is a gift from God. Life is created by God. But pagans don't understand that. Pagans don't believe that. And we live, friends, in an increasingly pagan culture where people do not believe that life comes from the hand of a good creator God. And as a result, life is expendable. And human life can be compared to animal life. The Bible distinguishes between that made in the image of God and that which is not, but pagans have no such basis for that. So the great apostle Paul, on his missionary journey, found himself in the pagan city of Athens, Greece. Acts chapter 17 tells us that he preached to, he proclaimed Christian truth to the pagan philosophers there. And it's interesting that he starts in his proclamation to them where the Bible starts with creation. God made all things. And therefore all things come from his hand and are a gift from his good hand. He says to them, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because... He himself gives all men 
life, and breath, and everything else. The mere fact that you pagan philosophers are here and able to breathe and listen to what I'm saying is a gift of God. And in fact, you know that deep down, even if you don't want to appropriate it in your living. And that's why he says next, in him, in God, we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. The Bible teaches that even the pagans who live in an atheistic way know deep down that they are products of the creative activity of God but deny it in the way they live. Life is a gift from God. God is the one who created life. Psalm 139, where I ask you to turn, speaks of God's intimate and direct activity in the creation of life in the womb. This work of God is not something that's distant. Contrary to that great theologian, Bette Midler. Yes, God is watching us, but not from a distance. God is omnipresent, says the psalmist in Psalm 139. There is nowhere that I can go to flee from your presence. You are all-powerful, and you are everywhere present. And then in verse 13, he moves to where it all really began in a very personal sense. Notice verse 13. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Literally in Hebrew, when he says you created my inmost being, you created my kidneys. You, you formed my kidneys. No, no, why that? Because for the Hebrews, the, the term kidneys was a term that was used to refer to the complex of organs that made up the human anatomy. And so you formed my inmost being, all that comprises me, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. The DNA strips that are woven together, you've woven them together. You wove together the complex genetic plan that produced me. You, God, were the weaver, says the psalmist. And then in verse 14, I praise you because... I am fearfully made. When it says fearfully, it's awesomely. A high level of reverence for the work of God. And the psalmist is saying, as we should say, that it's a staggering thing to think of what you have done, God, in fearfully and wonderfully making us. And so the end of verse 14 says, your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And then beginning in verse 15, it gets a bit technical. When it says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. You were making me and you framed me. That's speaking of bones and muscles and ligaments and tendons and the structure of the body. You, God, were aware of all of it when I was made in secret when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. And when it says the depths of the earth, it's a euphemism for the womb, the hidden place, the secret place. And verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. 
Some translations say my unformed substance. It's a Hebrew word that means something rolled together, something balled up before it's unfolded. When it was just a, a, genet- a genetic mass, it was just an embryo, it was just a ball before it became, began to unfold, but you, God, framed it, you saw it, and you wrote in your book everything that was going to take place for all the days of that child before any of them ever came to be. And friends, this is God personally and intimately involved in the very early stages of life, life yet unfolded, God intimately involved. And so as one preacher says, God is not looking to us like a map with red dots and noting wherever there's a person. God sees deep into us and He's known us intimately from conception. And that's why He says in verse 17, says the psalmist, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. You know so much about me that I can't even count all your thoughts about me. They would outnumber the sand of the the sea, says the psalmist. God knows intimately everything about you from the time of your conception because He made you and He made every person who has ever been conceived. Life is a gift from God because God creates life. Job acknowledged this as well. Job says to the Lord, Your hands shaped me and made me. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life and in in your providence watched over my spirit. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, I formed you in the womb. Is everybody clear what God says? (laughs) We could go on and on. Now you might say, well, what about a deformed baby? Well, one, we're all deformed. It's just a matter of degree. But you know, God is intimately involved in everything that happens in His world. Nothing takes God by surprise. Notice what God said to Moses. Moses, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And do you all remember in the New Testament that Jesus was asked by some of his first followers about a man who had been born blind. And they asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You all remember that? And here's Jesus' response to that. He was born blind so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, friends, from a biblical standpoint, who do we think we are? to judge the quality of life that comes as a gift from God. Life is a gift from God. God created life, and I say in your outline as well, life is created by God and life is precious to God. 
And that's why God has provisions in Scripture for the protection of that life which He gives and He creates. There's a passage in the law, second book of your Bible, that I'm going to show you on the screen in just a moment. And it speaks to life in the womb, and it actually talks about penalties to one who would harm the life in that womb. Exodus 21. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, now, you know, they're fighting and they hit a pregnant woman. She perhaps has stepped in to try to break this up, but she's in proximity and she gets hit as they're fighting. And if there's a serious injury to the baby, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. God says, that life in the womb is precious to me. And the precious value of that life is indicated by the penalty that will go with taking it. Exodus 21. Because God cares for life, he requires capital punishment for those who take innocent life. Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now why? Because man was made in the image of God. In your New Testament, government is given the authorization by God to execute those who would take what is precious to God, human life. Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right. He will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Here's why. He does not bear the sword for nothing. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Friends, we need to understand from God's standpoint, the Bible teaches very clearly that life is a gift from God. Life is created by God. Life is precious to God. Secondly, life, human life, reflects the character of God. Most of you know that, as I said earlier, human life is different from the rest of life that God created in one very, very important sense, and that is human life alone is made to reflect God back to God, made in His image. God created man and man alone in his own image. And so we bear a personal and moral resemblance to God. A personal resemblance in that we are persons as is God with personal capabilities of thought and of action and of feeling, mind and will and emotion. And we have a moral resemblance to God as well in that we're able to act as God acts, think as God thinks. Talk as God would talk. And in so doing, reflect His character back to Him. Mirrors, as it were. And that's why James can say this in your New Testament. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. And he goes on to say, this ought not to be. 
You see, we, we want to praise God, but then we are going to curse that which resembles God, is made in God's image. And James is attempting to show the inconsistency of that. We saw that human life is precious to God, and therefore God instituted capital punishment for murder. Why? For in the image of God has God made man. So we have this resemblance to God, moral and personal. Only those who are persons, now hear this, can act on God's behalf, act like God acts, talk like God talks, think like God thinks. And only those persons can do the contrary as well. Fail to think as God thinks. Fail to talk as God would talk. Fail to act as God would act. To put it another way, only persons can sin. Now here's why that's important. Notice what David says in Psalm 51. I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Do you see that David is saying here, I was conceived as a person, made in the image of God with this personal resemblance to God, and therefore have the capacity to sin. Only persons have that capacity. And David says, at conception, we acquire it and then develop it. And so life is a gift from God, the Bible teaches. Life reflects, human life is to reflect the character of God, made in His image, not to be destroyed, but to be cared for and protected. And that's the third point in your outline. Life must be protected. In our final portion of our message, I want to spend time thinking about how we do that. If all of that is true, if life is a gift from God because because life is created by God and it's precious to God, and if life reflects the character of God, if all of that is true, then it's to be protected. And God requires us to take positive action to protect that precious life which He has given. Now, how does that happen? How do we participate in protecting life? I say in your outline, first, be aware of attacks on life. And this is where the naivete of Christian people who are unaware of what is happening in our culture and what is taking place from a governmental standpoint keeps us then from protecting life as we should because we are unaware of what's happening. And I would like to take a few minutes to inform us. You see, friends... The desire for abortion goes back many decades. The desire to legalize abortion goes back many decades. And if you trace the history of the pro-abortion movement, you will find that it is attached to something called the feminist movement. Now, why would feminists (laughs) clamor for the right to terminate pregnancy, to kill babies in the womb? Why would they do that? 
You need to understand that the feminist agenda ultimately comes down to this eradicating differences between genders. And the most stark difference between the two genders is the ability to bear, to conceive and bear children. And from a radical feminist standpoint, this is not a gift from God. It's an inhibition that keeps me from achieving my goals. Therefore, I must have the right to abortion on demand. Further, you will find that feminism and the homosexual lobby work hand in hand because they have the same agenda. You say, how do they have the same agenda? Think about it. Eradicating gender differences is the agenda for both. This is why, and I'm not making this up, it's just a fact. This is why much of the leadership in the radical feminist movement of the National Organization for Women is lesbian. So abortion has been pursued for decades. Bill Clinton said that he believed that abortion should be three things, safe and legal and rare. And I would just say very clever, a rhetorical turn of phrase, safe, legal, and rare. Sounds good. It's legal, but hear this. It is never safe. Abortion is never safe. It is never safe for that baby, is it? To say that abortion must be safe, safe for whom? Never safe for the child. Rare? Really? Over a million every year? Over 50 million in the last 40 years? We must be aware of attacks on life. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into the gory details of what happens in an abortion. But gory is a kind word. And you have that available to you to make yourself aware so that you can act accordingly. But remember that I said the AMA back in the day opposed abortion because of advances in embryology, making it very clear that what is in the womb is human life. Well, of course, we've advanced much further since then. And now with an ultrasound, you can see all that's taking place in the womb. There is now no excuse to claim ignorance of what we're doing. At 16 weeks, and many abortions, many abortions are performed well after the first trimester. But just at 16 weeks, hear this, the body is fully formed. The fingers and toes have fingerprints and nails. The baby is about five inches long, weighs about three ounces. The baby at that point is moving about, may grasp for the umbilical cord, suck its thumb, make facial expressions. The heart and circulatory system, the urinary tract are fully functioning and blood is pumping through the tiny veins. The baby's inhaling and exhaling the amniotic, amniotic fluid through the lungs. The eyes are in the proper position. The baby can see straight ahead and blink his or her eyelids. 
genitals have formed. In the case of a girl, the uterus has already developed. Ovaries are in their proper place. And God knits this together. And we believe we have the right to take it. So after I gave that message back in November, before the election, about what God gives government to do to promote what is right, including the protection of life, and I talked about what our responsibilities are to government. Afterwards, I heard people say things like, but the president, (laughs) the president has nothing to do with this issue. Who the president is has nothing to do with this. You know, there was a day when you had to take civics class. And I don't know if people are still taking that, but if they are, somebody's teaching it really lousy. The president has nothing to do with that. Just bear with me for a few minutes as I remind us of the system under which we are governed. Our Constitution says that the president shall appoint justices to the Supreme Court. And those justices, says our Constitution, are to be confirmed by our Senate. But it begins with an appointment by the President. Now remember, friends, who it was that invalidated the laws of 50 states in 1973, none other than nine men on the Supreme Court. Further, 19 years later, in 1992... In Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court had a chance to get it right and reverse it. And because, frankly, the wrong appointments were made, that did not happen by a five to four vote. One justice going the other way, and abortion is no longer a constitutionally protected right. And it's the president who appointed those justices. Who we elect as president matters in so many ways, not least in helping determine who will make these life and death decisions under which we are governed. Do you all know that there is something called the Born Alive Infant Protection Act? Remember I talked about these botched abortions and the barbaric nature of what happens with a baby who didn't do what he or she was supposed to do, namely die? And so an act introduced the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. When President Obama was a state senator and later a senator, he voted four times against the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. That's protecting babies who survived abortion and voted in favor of leaving them to die. A vote against that legislation was a vote, friends, for infanticide. Look it up. On President Obama's third day in office in 2009, he repealed what's called the Mexico City policy. Now, what's that? In 1984, a pro-life president, Ronald Reagan, decreed by executive order that the United States would not give funds 
to any agency internationally that promoted abortion, that our tax dollars would not be used. That was announced in Mexico City in 1984. It's called the Mexico City Policy. It was put in place by the president, the chief executive, by executive order. It was rescinded in 1993. Do you know what happened in 1993? We had a new president named Bill Safe, Legal, and Rare Clinton. And he rescinded it. In 2000, the Mexico City policy was put in place again. Do you know what happened? We had a new president, George W. Bush. In 2009, President Obama rescinded it. Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in our country. And they're supported by our tax dollars. Funding for Planned Parenthood under the Obama administration has gone from 33% of their funding to 50%. Nearly a half billion dollars now goes to this abortion giant. The parties have platforms. These are public documents. That if we are going to be aware of attacks on life, then we need to know what they say. Let me read a couple of excerpts. This is from the Democratic Party platform. You all know what the platform is? It's a document they put out every four years. This is what we believe. This is what we want to do. Quote, the Democratic Party strongly and unequivocally supports Roe versus Wade and a woman's right to make decisions regarding her pregnancy, including a safe and legal abortion. Let me stop there. It used to say safe, legal, and rare. They took rare out this year. Including a safe and legal abortion regardless of ability to pay. Now, you know what the regardless of ability to pay piece is? If she can't pay for it, then somebody needs to. That would be you and me. We oppose any and all efforts to weaken or undermine that right. The Republican Party platform says this. Faithful to the self-evident truths enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, we assert the sanctity of human life and affirm that the unborn child has a fundamental individual right to life which cannot be infringed. We support a human life amendment to the Constitution and endorse legislation to make clear that the 14th Amendment protections apply to unborn children. We oppose using public revenues to promote or perform abortion or fund organizations which perform or advocate it and will not fund or subsidize health care which includes abortion coverage. We support the appointment of judges who respect traditional family values and the sanctity of innocent human life. Just public documents. I'm just quoting. Be aware of attacks on life. And then last, be active in protecting life. That means, obviously, in how you vote, be aware and then act. 
Edmund Burke said famously, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And as you actively protect life, it means you're going to have to deal with objections that are raised to a pro-life stance. I'm going to bounce through a few of these quickly. You all heard this before, right? You can't proscribe abortion. You can't prohibit it. Because, quote, who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body? Who do you have to be? That's my question. That's what I'd ask. I would recommend you say. Who do you have to be? We live in a society where laws are passed by legislators that we elect. And I want to elect legislators who want to protect life. So who do you have to be to say, when you see octagonal signs that are red at a corner, you've got to take your foot off the accelerator and put it on the brake. And when the cop comes to the window, this is what I want you, pro-choice person, to say. Who are you to tell me what I do with my own body? You see, we do it all the time. It's called laws. And laws are designed to protect. And we want to protect life in the womb. Who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body? But what about the right to choose? Well, that depends on what you're choosing, doesn't it? which gets us back to what is happening when this is, procedure is performed. God says it's the taking of a life. And you don't have the right to choose that. But what about the right to privacy? You see, our Supreme Court, in its infinite wisdom, found the inviolable right to an abortion in the First Amendment right to privacy. Now, I would just encourage you, read the Constitution. It'll take you just a few minutes. You know, read the First Amendment. That'll take you a few seconds. And abortion's not found anywhere. Where'd it come from? This is what they said. I'm not making this up. The right to abortion comes from the Constitution's right to privacy which is given to us, and now this is a quote, in penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. Everybody good? Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has a plaque on his desk. It says this, Please don't emanate on my penumbras. And he's just making fun of the absurdity of the language. A penumbra is a shadow. Emanate means to be derived from. So break it down. The inviolable right to an abortion comes from shadows that derive from the First Amendment. Now let me put that in English. They made that up. And so, what about the right to privacy? Well, the Constitution does not give anyone an inviolable right to privacy. It does depend on what you're doing in private, doesn't it? Do you have the right to take illegal drugs in private? Uh, The answer would be no. Okay? What about rape? Well, first, cases of rape are 
1% of the number of abortions that are performed. That's a canard. I remember hearing it for the first time from Walter Mondale debating Ronald Reagan in the 1984 election. But what about cases of rape and incest? 1%. That 1% matters, for sure. And those women matter. But those innocent babies still matter, too, is the answer. And last, I could go on, but how many times have you heard? Maybe you've said, but abortion is just a single issue. Right, as if you have a pantheon of issues, an array of issues, and abortion is just one of them, like tax rates, you know, or environmental policy, as if it's just one among many. But see, friends, issues, right, they're not just counted. They have to be weighed in their importance, don't they? It's not just, war is just a single issue then. Just one among many. I don't think so. And abortion is literally a life and death issue. And not only that, a foundational life and death issue. Nothing else matters in government policy if you don't make it out of the womb. And so what do we do? Get involved. Be aware. And lastly, I'll give you another way to get involved and we'll be done. Let me read you a testimony. I had an abortion. I was a single young woman, not a Christian, who loved to party. I had a terrific job at Ford Motor Company. I I lived alone in a nice apartment. I had a brand new car. I found but I found myself pregnant. I was angry at myself for being so careless. Being the self-centered, fiercely independent person that I was, the first thing that came to my mind was, I'll get an abortion. There was no thought put into this decision whatsoever. I didn't even know what an abortion was. I just knew I was pregnant and I didn't want to be. I knew it was legal. My boyfriend would pay for it and then I could start fresh. So that's what we did. They told me at the clinic that I could resume all normal activities in two days and go on as if nothing happened. I believed them. They were so nice and comforting. Why would they ever lie to me? But lie they did. I cried all the way home. In fact, I could barely breathe. The pain of the procedure was beyond anything I had ever experienced. I was awake the entire time. I thought my insides were being ripped out. I tried to get up, but the nurse had such a tight grip on my arm that she scared me. The doctor never said a word, not one word. I never saw him. I was hyperventilating. They had to give me a drug to calm me down. They also told me that in order to leave, I had to be calm. I later realized that I had to leave the clinic through the same waiting room that many women and young girls were waiting for their turns. The staff didn't want me in hysterics. That would be bad for business now, wouldn't it? For weeks, I would cry for no reason. And then as I turned off a light switch, I determined to never think about it again. And for 15 years, I gave it no thought whatsoever. I buried it deep. By the time I was 40, I had become a blackout alcoholic. I would lose hours and sometimes days. My neighbor, who was a Christian, came to my house one day in 1993. She shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. I was so resistant, I locked myself in the bathroom. She was trying to tell me that God forgives all our sins if we believe in Jesus, His Son. That was beyond my comprehension. I'd never heard anything like that. I could not imagine God forgiving someone that aborted her baby and was drunk all the time. 
But my neighbor told me that she had had an abortion and she struggled with alcohol and drug addiction and she didn't even know my past. She told me that when she and her husband invited Christ to be the Lord of their lives, everything changed. And I saw it in her eyes. She was telling the truth. By this time, I had come out of the bathroom. She invited me to pray and ask Jesus to come into my heart and change me. That was 20 years ago. And I've never had a drink since that day either. Praise the Lord. I knew I was forgiven of my sin of abortion because the Lord drew me so close and took me on a journey of reading His Word, studying it, and learning how to pray. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I took Him at His Word. I believed I was forgiven. And I wanted other women to know that they could be forgiven too. Now that is a testimony from our very own Sharon Sternberg who gave me permission to read it to you. And Sharon, in God's good grace, for the last several years, has been involved with a ministry called Healing Hearts. It's for women who have had abortions to share the forgiveness of Jesus. You see, friends, our ambition in this endeavor is not first and foremost penalties, It's reclamation. It's choosing life. It's helping those who have not seen the value of life and are suffering as a result. And there are many, many, many women who don't just go on as if nothing happened. And maybe you're one of them. There's healing and forgiveness in Jesus for you. If you want to see Sharon, we had arranged before today for her to have some flyers about healing hearts. This afternoon at 2 o'clock at the First Presbyterian Church in Trenton on West Road, sanctity, there's a Sanctity of Life program. Sharon's going to be a part of that as well. My wife and I are planning to attend that, and you all are invited, of course, also. And those of you who have had abortion and you wonder, where is my child? What happened to my child? I believe now, I know now, that this was a gift from God, that this is human life. Where is my child? I commend to you a book by the man I mentioned earlier, John MacArthur, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. If you'd like a copy of that book, it explains to you what he believes and I believe to be the Bible's teaching, that God overrules sin in the lives of infants. And they're safe in the arms of Jesus. If you'd like a copy of that book, let our folks at the Resource Center know during our break time. We're going to place an order. You'll have them by next Sunday. Friends, we're going to bow and pray. Let's pray to ask God to sanctify our thoughts so that we see life as He sees it. That we see all of life, human life as He sees it. That we make ourselves aware of what's going on in the place that God has called us to serve and to protect life. And then that we act accordingly. Those of you who have sinned in this way with regard to human life, understand that forgiveness is available in Jesus. And he can change you from the inside out as he changed Sharon and me and so many of us. Listen, if he can save me, he can save anybody.
you say you, what else did you do? One sin, one sin of any type is worthy of eternal banishment from the presence of God. If he can save me, he can save anybody. So realize you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ paid it all. Repent. Lord, I'm going to follow you and receive Jesus into your life as we pray. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you, giver of life, creator of life, for what you have done in making your world, in making us in intricate ways, knitting us together in our mother's wombs. We thank you that you're the sustainer of life. But Lord, we know that the enemy hates what you love. He hates what reflects your image and therefore is a murderer from the beginning, as Jesus said. Oh, Lord God, help us as your people to protect what is precious to you. May it be precious to us as well. So help us to be informed. Help us to be active. And Lord, I pray that any here who need forgiveness from this particular sin to understand that you forgive all sin equally in the blood of Jesus. I pray that they're appropriating the blood of Jesus to cover all their sin, not just this one, but all sin past, present, and future by crying out from their heart to you. May you change them from the inside out so that with their lives and their lips they bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.